Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing a very dramatic week in Brexit as Boris Johnson struck his new deal in a huge diplomatic dash. We'll be digging into how a new deal emerged, what's inside of it, what replaced the Irish border backstop, at what cost. We'll be looking into what's going to happen in Parliament this weekend, how Downing Street lost the DUP and whether, the big question of all, this deal is going to get the endorsement of MPs. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Brussels Bureau Chief Sam Fleming, columnist Robert Shrimsley, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green and political correspondent Laura Hughes. Thank you all for joining. If you'll find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then please subscribe through those usual channels to get it every Saturday morning and you can also leave us a nice review. So Boris Johnson has done it. He has managed to strike a new Brexit deal in a frantic political week. After many highs and lows of shuttlecock diplomacy, the Prime Minister brought forward a new Brexit deal that came together on Thursday morning without that troublesome Irish border backstop. But the deal has come at a high cost. Mr Johnson is essentially going to put up a customs border down the Irish Sea and due to this, he lost the support of the Democratic Unionist Party. George Parker, let's begin where we're at the beginning of this week. So we have to really go back to the will which is where this dash to a new deal started, where Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar met and spent several hours together. And we still don't exactly know what was discussed in that meeting, but that was really the kickoff point. And when we recorded the podcast this time last week, discussions were still going on throughout the weekend to try and get a deal together. And ever since Sunday evening, we had some highs and lows. It was looking less hopeful on Monday, but then it started to look more and more hopeful till eventually the text was settled and it emerged on Thursday morning. Yes, well, the we're all meeting, I think, that will be seen as the decisive moment in this whole saga in terms of Boris Johnson getting the deal. The, the crucial decision that was taken at that meeting in the ornamental gardens of the Thornton Hall Hotel, a wedding venue which looks suspiciously lovey-dovey, I think, from unionist point of view, this talks with Baraka, was that Boris Johnson accepted that there was not going to be any sort of customs border in Ireland. Now, if you take that out of the equation, suddenly a deal becomes much more possible because it's Boris Johnson accepting that the border instead, as you said, has to go down the Irish Sea. Now, once you've accepted there isn't going to be a customs border in Northern Ireland, you've made the big concession. It was the concession that Theresa May wasn't willing to make and really everything else flowed from that meeting. So, Robert Shrimsley, the optics around this have been fascinating to watch because, of course, when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister about 90 days ago, he said, we're going to get rid of the backstop and we're going to reopen the withdrawal agreement. And a lot of people at that point said, neither of those things are going to happen. The withdrawal agreement isn't changing and the backstop isn't going. To his credit, he has done that. But that has come, as George said, at a pretty high cost. Yes, you have to give him credit. He has more or less done what he said he was going to do. I think the reason there was so much scepticism was people didn't believe he would throw the Democratic Unionist Party under the bus quite as brutally as he has. And the bottom line is he had been on record before he became Prime Minister in the strongest possible terms ruling out the notion of a customs and regulatory border. 
the reason he's managed to get a deal is because, with modifications which have to be acknowledged, he has gone back to the deal that the European Union offered Theresa May in the first place nearly two years ago. I think when we all looked at this process, we said there is no way Boris can do all the things he's promised. He's going to have to betray somebody. And the question we all waited for was who was it was going to be betrayed? And the answer is it was the Democratic Unionist Party, which is a very bold thing to do because he needs their votes. But that's what he did. So it wasn't this unalloyed victory. He didn't manage to keep everybody happy. He went from a UK-wide backstop to what, with certain modifications, is a Northern Ireland-only backstop. People prefer to call it a front stop. He did, I think, very importantly, get the principle of democratic consent and an exit mechanism built into this. And that was a really important point. But nevertheless, it's come at the price of the betrayal of the DUP. So Sam Fleming, just take us into what is different in this deal from Theresa May's deal, because fundamentally the withdrawal agreement hasn't changed. And as Robert was just saying, there's these two issues of customs and consent. So we're back essentially to the Northern Ireland only backstop, but it does have a crucial exit mechanism. And we've seen the legal advice from the government, which is the complete opposite of what they said about Theresa May's deal, which said that as far as it is concerned, there is no way the UK could be kept in this arrangement in perpetuity. That's right. The vast bulk of the withdrawal agreement hasn't changed, covering areas like the exit cost to the UK and citizens' rights. This wrangling has been around the section of the withdrawal agreement focusing on the arrangements for Northern Ireland, and that's been really the key sticking point for a long time now. Now, what Mr Johnson was keen, to put it mildly, to ensure was that Northern Ireland remained in the UK's customs Territory. He saw that as an important signal that the UK wasn't being effectively broken up as part of the creation of the backstop or front stop, whatever we want to call it. The way he's achieved that is by ensuring, by a very complex compromise, that Northern Ireland will follow European Union customs rules. The way this works is that when a product will enter into Northern Ireland, EU tariffs will be imposed on any product which is seen as at risk of travelling into the European single market from Northern Ireland into the Republic. Effectively, this means that there's a great deal of legal certainty for the European Union that its customs regime will apply rather than the UK customs regime. The way that the UK will be able to apply its own lower tariffs if it can achieve them on those products is slightly more complicated and that will have to be worked out in time. Mm. It's been called Schrodinger's backstop. It's a very complex regime. But I think when we boil it down, it is very similar to the original Northern Ireland only backstop. There are some tweaks to help the UK get its customs rules to apply for some products going into Northern Ireland, but certainly not all of them. I do think, if I could just jump in, I do think it's important not to understate the consent point because there was no escape mechanism from the previous backstop. There was no way that the people affected by it could say, no, we don't like this anymore. So this new consent principle, which requires a majority vote from the Stormont Assembly to opt out of it every four years, they can have that vote, is, I think, morally and constitutionally an incredibly important one. It's just that it's been designed in such a way that it's extremely unlikely ever to be used. Well, George, can you very helpfully take us through the consent mechanism in this? deal because this was the, one of the biggest things Brexit had a problem with Theresa May's deal was the idea that if you entered the backstop you could never leave and the off thing you heard from Michael Gove and other ministers was that it would be harder to leave the backstop than it would be to leave the EU and that has certainly changed with this new deal. Well I think Robert explained it quite well but the politics of it were basically that once Boris Johnson had decided that the border was going to be in the Irish Sea he knew he had a major problem with the DUP and the way he thought he could get around that was to say don't worry there will be a consent mechanism based on the agreements in the Good Friday Agreement, which basically says any big decision has to be agreed by both communities, so the nationalist and unionist community, which 
it didn't have to be a genius to deduce, meant there was a veto for the DUP. So the DUP were prepared to swallow the border in the Irish Sea, provided they could veto it. But the moment the EU said, sorry, that's not possible, and Boris Johnson gave way on that point, then the DUP were lost. Now, Robert's right that there is a consent principle now in place, which can be decided by a simple majority. But the DUP were concerned that in Stormont, people would realise actually this was such a good deal for Northern Ireland that they'd never in practice by a majority vote actually want to leave it. And it was quite revealing this week, Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, said it was a cracking deal for Northern Ireland because it would have frictionless access to the single market. Who'd have thought that was a good idea? Now, when we look at how we actually got to this deal, Sam, there were quite a lot of highs and lows this week. You know, when we started on Monday, there were very negative signals coming from Michelle Barney. Then they suddenly turned. Can you sort of give us an insight into what were the sticking points and how this thing eventually came together? So let's wind the clock a little bit further back to the Wirral. That was clearly the big high point, and as George said, the massive breakthrough for both sides, where the EU Commission was watching that carefully, saw the body language from uh, the Irish Prime Minister and realised something serious was afoot. You moved into last weekend, and that's when the Commission sat down with the UK negotiators and started to look in detail at how to make this hybrid UK-EU customs union for Northern Ireland actually work. And that was no easy task. There were a bunch of ideas floating around Whitehall. But what was very clear on the commission side was that you couldn't reinvent the wheel. You needed to start with something that you had on the shelf. And what we had on the shelf was this Northern Ireland only backstop, which the EU had proposed back in early 2018 and had been rejected by Theresa May. Why did the commission like that? It was legally operable, as they like to say. It was all written out in legalese. It had been poured over by draftspeople and lawyers to make sure that it actually could work and was fairly watertight. And there was just very, very little time. You only had a few days before the summit on Thursday in Brussels, where the leaders were supposed to get together and to endorse a deal if one could be struck by then. Now, by Sunday night, the mood music was quite bad, partly because there hadn't been exceptions on all sides that the Northern Ireland backstop off-the-shelf solution was the right way to start things. But by the next day, a breakthrough was being made. The UK accepted the idea that they work off the Northern Ireland backstop. The consent mechanism was meanwhile being hammered out. And certainly by Tuesday, I think both sides realised they had something big on their hands. They really could actually make this work. Now, there were some final wranglings, especially to do with the VAT regime that would govern in Northern Ireland right at the end of the negotiations. But by Thursday morning, it was clear that a deal could be done. Now, we had during that time some concerns from diplomats around the European Union that their leaders would not have time really to look at the treaty text that was being put before them on Thursday night in order to review it and determine whether there's something they're willing to sign up to. But in the end, they signed up anyway, basically because previous course of dealings made them feel they could trust Barnier to deliver something which basically worked. And they realized that the prize of getting a deal potentially through by October 31st was not one they wanted to turn down. And in Westminster, Robert, when this thing was being negotiated, what Number 10 did do was try to keep the two key caucuses on side. One is the Democratic Unionist Party, and as George said, they lost them, but there was an awful lot of effort you know people officials who were involved in those talks so it was painstaking effort there were hours and hours of meetings with leader of the DUP to try and keep them on board and right up until that final point on consent it felt as if they would be on board with the deal then also the ERG that's the European Research Group of hardline Eurosceptics they were very much kept on side and as we're recording this no one from the ERG has come out to say they're not going to vote for it. a lot of people are raising question marks but at the moment number 10 seems to have done a 
better job than Theresa May did about keeping the people, or at least trying to keep them on side, that you need to get this thing over the line? I think the interesting thing, and as you say, we're recording ahead of the vote, is that what Number 10 appears to have managed to do is separate the ERG from the Democratic Unionist Party. And the previous votes under Theresa May, there were many in the ERG who either took their lead from the Democratic Unionist Party or were happy to make the Democratic Unionist Party's dissatisfaction the cover for rebelling. What I think it's clear so far is that the government's done a much better job at keeping the hardline Brexiters and their own party on side. We won't know for sure for a few hours yet, but it's clear, and I've talked to a few of them and I know you have, that they're ready to buy into this. They're ready to be persuaded, partly because, of course, many of them aren't that unionist deep down. The prize of Brexit for Great Britain is big enough to make this worth their while, partly because although they don't trust Boris Johnson entirely, they trust him a lot more than they trusted Theresa May. I think Rob makes a good point. I mean, you think back to March, the last time Theresa May tried to get a deal through, the ERG said they'd be standing shoulder to shoulder with the DUP. And of course, at the end of the day, 24 hours after Jacob Rees-Mogg made that statement, he was voting for Theresa May's deal. And the long story of the Englishman's betrayal in Northern Ireland that started to do the rounds again. Look, I mean, you did some great work with Jim Pickard, Seb, on the numbers. And by your calculations, the government was on course to lose by three. But that was earlier in the week. But I always thought if you're within a margin of single figure margin of winning or losing a vote, you're in number 10. Think of all the levers you have at your disposal to get those people over the line. The knighthoods, the money for the local constituencies, the new hospitals, the suspension of the whip, the restoration of the whip. They're talking to Labour MPs. They're offering them concessions on employment rights. So there are whole loads of things you can do as prime minister. And we're talking about getting four or five people to change sides. Now, if I was in Boris Johnson's position going into the vote, as Robert says, we're recording before the vote happens. I'd be starting to feel a little bit more confident than I would have been a few hours earlier. And just finally, for both of you briefly, what do you think about how Boris Johnson comes out all of this? Because as we've said, yes, he's got a new deal, but it has come with an awful lot of caveats that he didn't promise when he told the Tory party that he would go to Brussels, get a new deal and get us out by October the 31st. You've been in Brussels with him, George, over the past 48 hours. What would you say the Prime Minister's mindset? Is he pleased, happy, tired? He was quite subdued at a, a press conference that they held in Brussels on Thursday night. He was only preparing to take three or four questions until I goaded him into taking a few more. But he, was, job. he seemed a little bit subdued, I thought. I think because of the fact that the talks with the DP had broken down in such a spectacular fashion. And was he going to go down the same route as Theresa May? But look, you have to give him credit for getting to where he said he was going to get. He's been shameless in how he's got there, but shameless is what you get with Boris Johnson, to be quite honest. And he is within touching distance of delivering a Brexit deal many people said was impossible. And if he gets it, he will be the person who delivered Brexit and an election will follow and he'll be well set. But, you know, the next few hours are going to be absolutely crucial for him. Yeah, I don't think you can really judge him until we know whether he's pulled it off. I do think it's an extraordinary position that both he and Theresa May have got themselves into where they make the leap before they know if they've got the numbers. In other words, they've got the safety net at the bottom to catch them. And I think we'll judge him accordingly in that sense. There is one other point, because I think it's important to remember when we talk about the DUP, although they are the only voice, well, almost the only voice of unionism in Parliament, they are not the only voice of unionism. And I do think there is a debate to be had within the unionist community at some point as to whether they have been best served by a party which, through intransigence, may well have actually sped the process of Irish unification rather than halted it. 
Now that Mr Johnson has a new Brexit deal, all the attention is the same question that went to Theresa May. Can he get it through the House of Commons? Because Downing Street lost support of the Democratic Unionist Party, there is not an obvious majority to get this thing through on Super Saturday, a special hearing that's taking place when you're probably listening to this podcast. How do the different parties stack up and what are the decisions MPs are trying to make? Laura Hughes, let's just begin with the DUP. We touched on them earlier, but they are really where to begin this whole question of can it pass through Parliament? Because they were the reason Theresa May never got her deal through. Those 10 MPs may only be 10 extra ticks on a voting slip, but they do represent a big strain of opinion. They are going to pose a big problem for Mr Johnson trying to get this thing through. Yes, Boris Johnson did the unthinkable for Theresa May and he's basically betrayed the Democratic Unionist Party who provided Theresa May's government for years with a very, very small majority. There are 10 MPs in the party and they have been unequivocal over the fact that they are going to vote this down. Why that really matters is they have been close allies with the so-called Spartans, the hardcore Eurosceptic Conservatives. They've been in meetings together, close confidants, honestly, for years. And we're reaching this point now where ERG are going to have to make a decision as to whether or not they betray their friends in Northern Ireland. And it looks as though they are going to do that. From the DUP's perspective, it all really came down to this issue of consent. And it's all very, very complex. But what it really means for the DUP is that they do not have a way of opting out of this new backstop for Northern Ireland. That is the fundamental crux of it. The backstop was the thing that stopped the ERG from getting on board with Theresa May's deal because it was a UK-wide backstop. It's now just a Northern Ireland backstop. And of course, the DUP is still opposed and they still can't back it. So Miranda Green, the DUP are not out, but the ERG aren't necessarily so now. We're big hostages to fortune recording this on Friday afternoon. But at the time of recording, not a single ERG member, including those Spartans, that's the 28 MPs who voted no to every single deal, including the third meaningful vote on Theresa May's deal. Nobody has come out to say they will not back the deal. Some have raised question marks. Ian Duncan-Smith, the former Tory leader, for example, Owen Patterson, the former Environment Secretary. And I've been told Downing Street were always expecting three to five of the Spartans would never come on board and the rest would. At this stage, though, it does look broadly as if the momentum is with them because Martin Howes, who's one of the top Brexit lawyers and very much his word is taken as gospel by the ERG, he said, to back the deal. So at this rate, it does seem to be going in Downing Street's favour. Well, that might be because of something that one of these hardliners let slip, which is that there have been private briefings from very senior cabinet ministers meant to reassure them that this is actually not just a hard Brexit for Great Britain, but it could even be eventually the pathway to a no deal when the transition period runs out. So they've raised this idea that the government is doing private reassurances in both directions, right? So on one side, they're trying to reassure these hardline ERG members that it's not copping out of Brexit because actually by the end of 2020, if no trade deal is done, it could still be a very, very tough no deal, WTO terms exit. But of course, the problem with that is that that's sort of now in the open that that briefing is going on. And that in its turn will put off some of the other votes that they have to tempt in from from the other side, significantly, this group of Labour MPs. 
Because this is the difficult balancing act, James Blitz, for Downing Street, that they want to get as, they have to, in fact, get as many of those Eurosceptics on side who have never backed any Brexit deal. But they've also got to keep a handful of Labour MPs on side. And by our calculations at the time of recording, there's nine Labour MPs, which if Every Conservative, both independent Conservatives, the 21 or so who used to be in the party, and every ERG, plus those handful of Labour, there is a majority of about one to get this thing through. But it's a very difficult political balancing act for number 10. Yes, it is. And I think your analysis, which was excellent, everybody's been doing analyses of these numbers. You came out with about 3184, 321 against. And so they do have to get, in those good circumstances, more Labour MPs. I think the factors that play in number 10's favour, though, in the end, are a sense among Labour MPs, especially in leave areas, that if this doesn't get through this time, this will be the fourth attempt to get the pact through, a lot of their constituents just won't understand it at all. And remember, we are probably, not definitely, heading for a general election in the near future. We have to have an election because Johnson doesn't have a majority. And I think there seem to be a lot of Labour MPs around in the run-up to this vote who are saying, I'm talking to my constituents, I'm hearing lots of different things. They're on Twitter saying, I've had somebody in my constituency saying, you know, we've really got to get out and so on, get Brexit done. That message of Johnson is getting through. It's a hostage to fortune because of the timing of this recording, but it just wouldn't surprise me if the number went up beyond nine towards 20. What's the sort of the dilemmas in their minds, Miranda, about these Labour MPs? They're trying to get because, you know, if you take someone like Lisa Nandy, who often writes for the FT, who's part of this group called MPs for a Deal, 17 Labour MPs, and if they all backed it, then it would go through. But they seem reluctant to get behind this. So I think they've got very complicated calculations in their mind. And James is right. I think they are genuinely trying to talk to constituents and find out what the mood is. I mean, somebody like Ian Austin, who sits as an independent MP now, but was Labour, he has committed to vote for it, for example. Sarah Champion has written to her constituents saying she will vote for it. Some others as well. And there is that feeling that this vote is drinking in the last chance saloon in terms of trying to get an agreement and to avoid no deal. But that may not be right as as per the government briefings to the ERG. And I think also something that's genuinely difficult for some of the Labour MPs is this fact that the level playing field, the idea that the UK going forward will actually be closely tied to and respect the regulations that protect things like workers' rights, like environmental concerns, the fact that that seems to have been downgraded and taken out of the withdrawal agreement itself the legal text, and put into the non-binding political declaration. That has really spooked them. They're saying to each other, well, do we trust Boris Johnson that this is in the political declaration, but that these won't disappear over time and that we really are heading to a very hard Brexit and a sort of Singapore on Thames right-wing free market vision of Britain that is very far from what any Labour MP wants to see this country become? It's sort of the typical Boris cakeism. He's trying to have it both ways. But the reality is every step he takes towards the ERG is one away from Labour and balancing those two out is going to be incredibly difficult for him. Yes, and I think also for those Labour MPs, I mean, sophologists like to point out, and it's true, that actually the Labour voters, even in leave seats, break for Remain. But the fact is that an MP is supposed to represent their whole constituency, not just the people that back them. And so actually, I think for a lot of them, it is a genuine dilemma of political principle. So, Laura... 
we've got the ERG Conservatives, he has to get on board. The handful of the Labour, he has to get on board. But he's also got to get on what the FT has called the Independent Conservatives. And the bulk of these are the 21 MPs who were chucked out of the party when they voted for the Ben Act last month. And the sense that we're getting is that nearly all of them are probably going to back the deal at this rate. Again, we're not 100% sure, but it looks like you know Nicholas Soames, the grandson of Winston Churchill and a grandee of the party, he said, I'm back it. He expects most to Richard Bennion, another Conservative backbencher, expects they will as well. What kind of argument is Number 10 using to get those people on board? Well, a number of them want to get back into the Conservative Party. That is a huge reason for them to vote for this deal. Someone described it to me as a game of snakes and ladders. If you want to get back into the party, you've got to take that big first step up the ladder and vote for the deal. If you vote it down, that's a huge snake. You're probably not going to be welcomed back in. I don't think it's totally certain though and I don't think we can be completely sure they're all going to get behind it. We know three of them won't because they want a second referendum. That's Dominic Grieve, Guto Bev and Justine Greening. Yeah and then there are these others who are actually staying very quiet and it's always interesting when they say quiet because we don't know exactly how they're going to go but I would agree with you that the majority of them will purely because they back Theresa May's deals. How can you back hers and then not this one when you're so close? But it's a calculation for them and then of course because they've left the Conservative Party, they're all feeling a bit more radical, a bit more emboldened, and and they have big choices to make, having made that stance to then seem to be folding back into the party line. And we know the Chief Whip, Mark Spencer, told the Cabinet he thought 15 of them or so would back it, and with three against, that feels about right. But one complicating factor, James, because it's never straightforward, is another Letwin amendment. So Sir Oliver Letwin, who is backing the deal, we should clarify, who was the guy responsible behind this plan to put forward the legislation to force a Brexit delay. He put down another amendment which is going to be voted on first and this is very important for those independent conservatives. It's complicated. Let me stand back and explain it as best I can. If Boris Johnson's deal is passed in the meaningful vote on Saturday, then it's essential that the accompanying legislation, which is called the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, is onto the statute book by October the 31st. This is a really complicated legislative package, which basically brings everything in the deal, including the situation for Northern Ireland, into UK law. If that Withdrawal Agreement Bill, or the WOB as it's called, is not on the statute book by October the 31st, Britain falls out of the European Union in a no-deal scenario. Now, a lot of Conservative MPs, these independents particularly, and Sir Oliver Letwin, are worried that if they simply give approval to the Johnson deal, that's a scenario that could happen, that perhaps you could find some of these Spartans or hardline backbench MPs coming out and basically doing something that means that the WOB doesn't get passed and we fall out with no deal. So what the amendment says is we withhold full approval of the Johnson deal in a meaningful vote now, and we will only provide it at the moment that the withdrawal agreement bill, the WOB, is on the statute book. Now, this has a number of effects. Number one, it means there's only a partial success for Johnson if this gets through, because it means that the Parliament has withheld full approval, and that means that the Ben Act kicks in, and there has to be an extension. Johnson doesn't like that. Wants to leave on October the 31st. He's not going to be pleased with that at all. The second thing is, this does mean that there is much longer scrutiny of what this deal is actually about. At present, you've got scrutiny lasting only 36 hours from the time that Boris Johnson was in Brussels to the actual vote in the House of Commons. If the Letwin Amendment goes through, you have scrutiny for a longer period, at least up till the 31st of January. Johnson doesn't want that. Why? Actually, because it's a bad 
deal he's got. It's a deal which is economically damaging for the UK. It's a huge constitutional challenge to the UK and Northern Ireland and Scotland. Far better for him if he can rush the whole thing. So actually what happens on Letwin is really important. So this does raise the question, Laura, that if this deal goes through, then the question is the 10-day mad dash to pass it through. And if the Letwin Amendment falls, now there'll be a lot of Conservative whipping to stop that amendment yes. from getting on the statute books, then Boris has to get all the legislation through in a big dash. And essentially, he will say to Parliament, OK, you've passed the meaningful vote, which means the Ben Act falls aside. There's no extension. You have to get this through. And if you amend one single bit of it, that means no deal. And that's a pretty big threat to put forward. Yeah, and then there's all this talk of a second referendum moves to secure one then. But the atmosphere in the country potentially will feel very different if a deal is seen to have passed in the House of Commons because a lot of constituents will be saying to their MPs, no, we just want this to end. We've done it now. Why do you have to come back to us? So there's going to be a huge debate there. And over the last few weeks, we've seen opposition parties fail to get their act together really on this particular point because they cannot agree what goes on the ballot paper. They can't agree if you need a government of national unity. Who would lead that? So it's really tricky to see how that actually happens. But that will be the immediate focus of what happens next. Do we now see this vote put to the public in the form of a second referendum? Now, Miranda, if it doesn't pass, then we end up back in the world of difficult options because if that meaningful vote hasn't gone through by the end of Saturday, then the Ben Act kicks in and Boris Johnson will have to write a letter and he said he will write the letter requesting another Brexit extension. He may then try to sabotage it in some way. There's been various talks about that and he may whisper to some EU leaders, could you veto an extension? But in reality, they're probably not going to. What do you suspect is going to happen then if this deal falls? I think then... We move from the heads-I-win section of the Boris Johnson strategy into the tails-you-lose section of the Boris Johnson strategy, which is he then calls a general election. Again. Again. There are parliamentary mechanisms to get it through without the Fixed Term Parliament Act. And then he goes to the country in this sort of triumphant mood. And I think if you look at some of the front pages of the newspapers since the deal was agreed in Brussels, you'll get a flavour of what we will be in for. There'll be massive pressure to back him. But if they were to go to the country with a Conservative manifesto, which still left open this prospect of a possible no-deal Brexit, it would not be simple for the whole Tory party and all the existing Tory MPs, let alone those who are currently whipless, to stand on that manifesto. So it becomes tricky. Because that's really where it would head law is that you go to the country and the Tories say, we've got this deal, let's just get this deal implemented. We'd have a kind of six weeks election campaign with polling day probably early December. And Labour should back that, by the way, because Labour always said it would back an election once a Brexit extension had been secured. They may, they may not do that, but that seems to be where it would head if the deal doesn't go through. There are other mechanisms to get an election, but they're really complicated and they're risky for number 10 because if you try to get an election through a simple parliamentary procedure, it leaves you open to having amendments added to that, which could see the SNP calling for votes for 16-year-olds. It's complex and there is a question as to whether or not the former Tory MPs, now independent Conservatives, back an election because speaking to them, they have concerns that an election doesn't solve anything. It still doesn't solve anything if you don't get a majority. And actually, at that point, a second referendum is the better option. And is it in Labour's gift to give Boris Johnson the election that he wants? Potentially not. There are splits within the Labour Party again over this. So, yes, he would want to go straight into an election on a high if he doesn't get this deal through, but it might not be totally easy for him to do that. And finally, James, briefly, what do you think will happen if the deal doesn't get voted through on Saturday? If it doesn't get through and Johnson completely fails, obviously we'll enter this contest in the House of Commons over whether it's an election, whether it's a referendum... 
The problem, I think, with the referendum is it ultimately does require some kind of caretaker government to emerge, which is going to legislate this referendum and hold the country together while it's happening. And I just don't see that happening while Corbyn insists that he is going to be head of this caretaker government. So I think we will gradually slide towards an election because in the end, the underlying factor in all of politics at the moment is we have a government without a majority. They clearly do not have a majority. They haven't been able to pass anything at all. And that, I think, is where it will go. That said, the great tragedy for Labour, because it's going to be tragic for them because they're going to be absolutely hammered in this election, is that if Corbyn had been sensible, then a long time ago, he would have started making a concerted case for a second referendum. That was actually, in the end, the place he wanted to be. He is going to, I'm afraid, reap the whirlwind he has sown. And in the end, I think it is Johnson going to the country saying, I've got this deal. Give me the numbers to get it through. It's a much more convincing case when you've got a deal than the one that Theresa May made in June 2017, when she said, give me the numbers, but she didn't have a deal. So nobody understood what she was talking about. Now it's actually a much clearer message. And I think we'll probably end up if one casts right further forward with a Conservative majority. And that's it for this week's episode. We hope you'll hang with us as we try to make predictions about very fast-moving events. Thank you very much to George, Sam, Robert, Miranda, Laura and James for joining. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and like to see more of our FT journalism, particularly on Brexit, then do check out our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Owen McSweeney. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.